With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money Coronavirus Market Update. It is Saturday, August 22nd, and Mark and I are on vacation. So we lifted some of the great interviews that we've conducted that maybe you forgot about and that might be particularly useful in this period of time. Today, we are rebroadcasting our interview with David Epstein. He is an author, and his book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, seem to be particularly important right now as we are asked to do so many different things for our bosses and do it from home. So I hope you enjoy this. This is our interview with David Epstein. As somebody who is a generalist, of course, I was immediately drawn to anything that reaffirms my thesis on life, which is know a little bit about a lot of stuff. So David, you previously wrote a book called The Sports Gene, when you were lecturing about that book, something else came up. So so talk about the reason you wrote this book and how it came out of the sports studies. Right. So in some ways, I'm, I'm glad this sort of affirmed your thinking because this project sort of began with something that overturned some of some of my thinking. Um, I was in the sports world where the, the so-called 10,000-hour rule, this idea that early specialization and, and in highly technical practice and whatever you're going to do is the route to expertise. And... After writing a little bit about talent in sports, I got invited to debate the writer Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which was founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And it was set up as 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. You know, even though uh-huh. we have some middle ground, this sort of talent versus practice thing. Malcolm's very clever, and I didn't want to get embarrassed, and we'd never met before. So I, I kind of tried to anticipate was he, what he was going to argue. And I figured he would have to argue that athletes should develop with a, as early as possible, get a head start in, in technical training and whatever they're going to do. So I went and looked at all the research I could find that tracks the development of athletes and, in fact, found that athletes who go on to become elite have what scientists call a sampling period early on. They play a variety of sports. They gain a breadth of general skills. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities. And they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so when it came to the debate, and Malcolm sort of said, look at Tiger Woods. And I said, well, look at Roger Federer, who sampled and didn't specialize until way later than his peers. And the question really is, which of these models is the norm? And here's what the data says, that the Roger model is the norm. We just don't really acknowledge it. And afterward, he sort of said, you know what you got me on was that Roger versus Tiger thing. We sort of became running buddies and would talk about it on our own time. And that, that lodged in the back of my head. And sort of a, an, another experience where I was doing some work with a foundation kind of brought it back to the forefront. I said, this is a project I I need to do. Because you open the book with the Roger versus Tiger thing, and you talk about what ultimately becomes a real difference in what they are doing. Because golf is a sport that the ball's not moving. Right. And it's a series of repetitive actions, strokes that you do have to master, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. And tennis, though, is a more dynamic sport. Yeah. And so is that the reason why the sampling or the early focus is not as important? That's a great question because the answer is largely yes. So in golf, there's kind of a dearth of data in golf, but I can absolutely believe that early specialization does work for golf 
because it is like skill acquisition scientists who study it classify it as almost like an industrial task. You're basically, it's non-dynamic. People wait for each other to take turns. You don't have any teammates you have to deal with. Um, you're basically trying to recreate known motions with as little deviation as possible over and over and over. And that's a very poor model, not only for the rest of sports, but certainly for most other things that humans want to learn. Whereas in these more dynamic sports like tennis, where you need what's called anticipatory skills, the reason these athletes seem like they can react so fast is they've actually learned to pick up on body cues very quickly that tell them what's coming before before it happens. And it turns out to build the scaffolding that helps you acquire those skills, you actually want this incredible breadth of challenges early on instead of this focused practice. And so I think golf, we should sort of drop it as Tiger Woods is the most famous development story maybe ever. Mm. But it turns out to be a uniquely poor model from which to extrapolate to other things. Are there any other sports like golf where you would see that kind of early focus would pay off generally? Yeah, I would think like targeting tasks maybe. Some, something like archery and shooting and things like that where they are static, uh, where people again wait to take turns, where you don't don't require anticipatory skills. But also in certain careers it would make sense. We'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Can I just go back to sports? So you're now new father. Yes, How do you feel about all these people who have their kids specialized? Let me just speak from personal experience. I grew up in a time where you did not devote all of your time energy to one sport. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you played, I played soccer and basketball. And then then a generation after me, or even a half a generation, all the kids were like, no, I play soccer, I play indoor soccer, and then I play spring soccer, and then I go to summer league. Right. So the parents have adopted that. Is there any shift yeah. in that now, or is it still that way? I, I would say it's shifting in the in the wrong direction for the most part in this country, but in the right direction in some other countries. And that isn't because, okay, the, the science is clear. The way to, the sampling period for all dynamic sports is totally the norm. But there are other forces at, at work here, right? Like youth athletes are customers for adults who have a very significant financial interest in keeping them away from other sports, right? When I lived in Brooklyn until recently, there was a U6 travel soccer team that met across the street from me. I don't think anybody thinks five-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people, but it's, <laughs> you, you You convince parents, right, that, well, if they're not on the U6 team, they can't be on the U7 team. And so you start this deselection process early where they have to get in the pipeline. These are customers, right? Whereas I, I played football, basketball, baseball in high school and became a university record holder in track in college. And I was just talking to Steve Nash the other day, the two-time NBA MVP. And he said he played basketball last. He didn't get a basketball till he was 13. And so he's exploring setting up an academy to incorporate what we know about optimal development. Unlike the U.S. where we have all these like, like this like balkanized youth leagues, everyone's doing their own thing. I get it because if you're the eight-year-old coach, the coach of eight-year-olds, not the eight-year-old coach, if your incentive is to win the eight-year-old's championship, then fine, specialize those kids. But we know that the way to develop the best eight-year-old athlete is not the same as the way to develop the best 20-year-old athlete. But if your incentive is only for the eight-year-olds, that's a problem. So like in France, they overhauled their soccer development pipeline to incorporate sampling and unstructured play. But they made those youth coaches and said, your job isn't to win as an eight-year-old. It's to help us develop these 20 and 30-year-old athletes. But we don't really have that here. Okay, so now let's move beyond sports into other areas where you were learning about specialization versus generalization. Mm-hmm. And so where did you go after sports? So this is like, this was your entryway in. What did you think about next for what would be the a, a good test case? Well, the first thing that came to mind after sports, frankly, was music because having written in sort of that genre of, of performance books before... 
I realized that sports and music were kind of the most associated in public consciousness with early specialization. You know, the, the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother book starts on page one with promising the secrets to raising successful kids. And, and part of the list is about music. The, the daughters must play piano or violin. They can't play any other instrument. Five hours of practice a day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Later in the book, of course, uh, the talented one quits. I, I knew that that was, that was a domain that I would be remiss not to take on if I was talking about specialization. So it was an obvious next step from sports. There are some areas where it does make sense. So yep. you're not saying don't practice. Nope. You're, oh, absolutely And not. you're not. So I, I just worry that sometimes people are going to like look at this and see like, and then like, oh, all right, then I don't. Have to. No, you still have to bring your same discipline, but yeah. just to different things. I think you, you just hit on one of the challenges for me as I talk about this book, which is differentiating what I'm calling a generalist here from just a dilettante who isn't that interested in or or that good at anything, right? The kind of generalists I'm profiling here. And and one of the reasons it's sort of late in the book that I start getting into scientists is because most people view them as the epitome of specialization, right? So I wanted to say like, look, here are these people who have depth in an area for sure. And yet, instead of getting deeper and more narrow, made their contributions because they harnessed these, this power of what I call range, even within what's normally a specialized area. One of the things that caught my eye about this is that when kids or even adults are struggling to find an answer, now you know you have um, almost like an instant ability to get to the conclusion. But getting that conclusion without struggle is actually not advancing your learning. Can you explain that? And this kind of gets to what I think is a theme of the book and one that was deeply counterintuitive to me, which is that practices and habits of mind that can cause the most rapid improvement, whether this is in your work, in sports, in music, or here just in learning generally in that, in that chapter, can systematically undermine your long-term development. That's deeply counterintuitive, that you can see progress before your eyes and somehow that's undermining you going forward. So, so this actually gets to, I don't want to go too far aside here, but in that chapter is one of the studies that to me was the most surprising in the entire book, which was done at the United States Air Force Academy. And and it was a study that you could not set up in any other way. So the Air Force Academy brings in freshman class every year. The students also take a sequence of three math courses, calculus one, calculus two, so on. And they are randomized to professors in calculus one. Then they are re-randomized in calculus two and then re-randomized again. So it's this incredible experimental condition, thousands of students, about 100 professors, what the researchers wanted to look at the impact of teaching. And what the researchers concluded was those teachers who taught the most narrow curriculum, the so-called using procedures knowledge, produced students who were really well prepared for that test, but then could not connect that knowledge to broader concepts going forward. So they were hampered going forward. And that's kind of a theme of this chapter where I talk about so-called desirable difficulties, where you actually want to put in the way of the learner these types of obstacles that cause them to be frustrated that cause their learning to slow down, but builds this more conceptual scaffolding that allows them to then learn to stack relevant things in that framework going forward. What does that tell you about the vast majority of, say, public school teachers who are teaching to the test? It's a huge problem. I mean, what you're going to do is you will improve how students do on that test, but that's not really what you care about, right? What you care about is is what psychologists call transfer, which is the ability to take that knowledge and apply it to situations you've never seen before. So one of the one of the strategies in the book is called 
interleaving, which basically means instead of practicing the same thing over and over and over. Look, I highlighted there interleaving. You go. There you go. So instead of practicing the same thing over and over and over, what you want to do is essentially diversify the challenges, like make the problems really different. This, this gets to a classic research finding I discussed in the book called Breadth of Training Predicts Breadth of Transfer. The, the more varied your training is, the less you're doing the same thing over and over, but the more able you will be to apply that knowledge to situations you've never seen before. And so we even think of things like professional development. When I've been through it, it's like you get this like one bout of something that you kind of do over and over and then you leave it forever. And the best way to do it is to be constantly mixing up challenges, which is frustrating, but helps your ability to transfer the knowledge and then to incorporate spacing. You want to make it easy to make it hard on yourself while you're learning. And spacing is just what it sounds like. So in a, in a famous study of spacing, Spanish vocabulary learners split into two groups. One group got eight hours of intensive study on one day. The other group got four hours in one day, four hours a month later. Same exact total study time. Eight years later, when they were brought back, the group that had the spaced practice remembered 250% more with the exact same amount of practice. Mm. That's totally different than what we normally do in school or in work. You do a topic and then you move on to the next topic. What you want to do is split all this stuff and mix it all together, which is frustrating, but forces you to build these more conceptual models that scaffold later knowledge. I love that. Thanks so much for listening. We'll have part two of our interview with David Epstein tomorrow. Remember, if you have a financial question, just send us an email. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. That's AskJill at JillOnMoney.com. And you can always hop onto our website, JillOnMoney.com. There, sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Until we speak tomorrow, don't forget to wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, and do something nice for somebody else. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.